Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Um, So our scripture today is um, from the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of God for all of God's people. Let us say, thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing or wave our hands around. All right, great job, kids, in ushering uh, the presence of Christ into Jerusalem there. Not so great on the adults who are too shy to wave their hands around. Um, so I don't, usually, I don't usually take dares, especially when it comes to delivering sermons, but um, when you receive a dare from an um, over 65-year-old in the choir, you take it. Um, and that dare came late, late Friday night that I saw when we got home. She had recognized um, on Lindsay's social media that we had gone to the Taylor Swift concert, along with 105,000 of our closest friends. Uh, on Friday nights, and um, she had dared me to utilize pictures from the crowd or pictures of Taylor and the set and everything was really great um, in the sermon. And um, we would have needed a telephoto lens from where we were standing the entire time to get good pictures of that. But um, I said, you know what? I'm going to take the dare because we're doing this, what would Jesus do in sermon series? And we're, we're talking about Palm Sunday when Jesus is going into the temple where policy is made and where laws are enforced and, and how we as followers of Jesus should engage in the public realm and the political sphere of things. And I thought there's nothing better to educate us on how faith intersects politics or the public sphere of things like Taylor Swift. Um, so I'm going to take the dare, and uh, really Taylor teed it up for me very nicely because she kind of, I don't want to ruin the concert for anybody who may be going tonight, but um, she teed it up nicely. You know, after a big dramatic entrance and like half of a song, she just, you know, welcomes the crowd, addresses the crowd, and, and I mean, there's 105,000 people just staring straight at her, and as she leads into the next song, she says, oh my gosh, y'all make me feel so amazing, y'all make me feel so powerful, All right? And she, she recognizes, like, I could do whatever I wanted to up here and y'all would think it was cool. And she could have. She could have sat on the floor, cross-legged, staring at the camera for 30 minutes and people would have said, that's the best piece of performance art I have ever seen in my entire life. 
The crowd was nuts. I mean, the people in front of us, there were these two young women, I assume they were high school or early college, who in front of us, and when she came out, it was like the clouds had parted and God's presence had came out and they lost their minds. And they weren't the only two people that lost their minds, but they were the people, one of them turned to the other ones halfway through the concert and said, I can't believe I'm in her presence. And we were about 200 yards away from her. So she's this far. I mean, she's this small. But they were just so overjoyed. And the, the reaction they had at the beginning of the concert never died off for three hours. And that, they were not alone. There were people screaming and jumping and pouring out their hearts. And some of them were me and my wife and my children that were just going nuts over the fact that we were in this person's presence. She's 100% right. She had absolute power over 105,000 people that were there, if she would have said, turn to your neighbor and slap him in the face, 78% of the people, if not more, would have done it. And what's, what's interesting to think about is she never deviated. I think in that situation, like I've been to concerts, like Elton John's done this before. He kind of rolls through the program and he's excited and he's humble, but he, he knows what he's doing. He knows the end game of it all. You know, I, Taylor knows the end game. Like she's going through, she's professional. Um, Bono with U2 is a little ADD. I don't think the band knows what he's going to do, but like in general, they stick to the script. They know the flow of the format. If you've ever seen an artist or a band that's kind of just starting out and they're not used to the spotlight, that power can be a little overwhelming when they recognize that people actually care about what they have to say or what they're singing about. Um, when I was in college, um, Rascal Flatts, the country band, they started emerging on the scene. So Praying for Daylight came out. And so some friends of mine, we went to Billy Bob's, um, which if you've ever been to a concert at Billy Bob's, it's usually sold out on that lower level there. And when I went and saw Rascal Flatts, there were so few tickets sold that they opened up the second dance floor down there. So there's about 150 of us there with Rascal Flatts. But when Praying for Daylight comes on, we're all just singing. We've heard it on the radio a million times. And so we're singing as loud as we can. People are dancing, people are shouting. And the singer gets so overwhelmed by this moment, he forgets the words to the hit song. And the whole band doesn't know what to do because he starts stumbling. So they, they stop and then they just play it all over again because they're overwhelmed by this. And, and I remember the guy saying, gosh, I don't know what to do with this. And I think there's a certain amount of all of us that we don't know what to do when we have that amount of power. And really mature people know how to handle it. And I would, I would venture to say that that's the lesson in Palm Sunday for us is what happens with us when we are going into places where we do have power in relationship to other people. And Jesus, you know, if you can hear the, the people who may not like Taylor Swift or Bono or whatever in the concert where people are going nuts for him, you can almost hear the words of the Pharisees of like, there's nothing we can do about this. The world has already gone after them. And this is the environment that Jesus is marching into on Palm Sunday as he's marching down from the Mount of Olives, coming into the eastern side of Jerusalem, into the temple gate there. Um, he's got throngs of followers. And in Jerusalem at the time, it's usually you know, estimated to be a population of around 40 or 50,000 that were in that capital city. But during Passover, where Jesus is marching into, there would have been an estimated 150,000 people. So the throngs of just mad, adoring fans are going nuts. And there are people who know Jesus's reputation from before. They've followed him around like they have been part of the folklore that's been building around Jesus. And so they uh, have witnessed the miracles in Galilee and they've gotten, heard the teachings. And so they're following him as ardent disciples along the way. 
And then there are people who have, like, if, if Jesus is not already an icon, like if his reputation hasn't already preceded him, they've seen the witness of Lazarus rising from the dead. And so they are just absolutely excited to join. And so you've got people who are already in this frenzy, who have followed him all the way from Galilee region to join in this parade. And then you've got the new energy from people from Lazarus that energizes the old energy. And so no matter how long this takes, people are going to have this energy of just waving palms and dropping coats and doing whatever they can in this kind of fearless fashion of we're going to take the capital by storm as much as we possibly can. And there are people in that crowd who want Jesus to have a different end game than he has. There are people in that crowd, like, so one of the disciples, and they're Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot. I mean, his name is the Zealot. And Zealots would hide up in caves to where they could ambush and attack Roman soldiers and kill them. They were looking to overtake the government. Zealot is somebody who takes, heart, you know, kind of violent actions toward a religious end. And so Simon the Zealot is named that because we suspect his goal of being a part of the movement of Jesus is to take over the government, kill the Romans. So he's part of the parade because he wants to see Jesus take this crown of king, use his power for their goals. Judas Iscariot is also thought to have been a zealot. There's a, there's a postulation and some good evidence that the reason why that he took the silver and ended up betraying Jesus is because he wanted Jesus to be this military leader that goes in there, marches on Rome, and destroys them all. In fact, takes out anybody in the temple who's in the way of the good Jewish cause. But even beyond the violence, there's James and John. I don't know if you remember or not, there's a story where James and John are kind of arguing amongst themselves. And they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on the right hand and the left side? And they don't mean like the heavenly kingdom upon resurrection. They mean when you march into Jerusalem to take names and kick everybody out, can we be your right and your left side advisors so that when we walk through the streets, everybody says, oh, there's James and there's John. Man, those guys are awesome, and we want to do whatever they can do. They want to be a part of that power so that the kind of folklore of their lives allows them to be part of the scene of Jesus' big show. But that's a story that's already been told. Like, that's a different era of what Jesus is really going for, and that's already happened in the past. They've seen that before. We've seen that before. And we'll just say that the name is Pilate. Because Pilate is marching in, in a different kind of parade. And Pilate is literally the governor of Judea, the Judean province of Rome. Pilate is coming in, and there are um, uh, researchers who, who postulate, too, that Pilate would have come in, and he's coming in to restore law and order. The Passover is a time that reminds the Israelites of their freedom from slavery. And they are now occupied by Rome. And so you can see where the images might get the Jewish people a little bit more in a frenzy. And it's thought that Pilate, as he's going in to quell any kind of rebellion, would have put one extra horse on the side of the chariot because the streets of Jerusalem are not real wide. And so that way his chariot comes down and anybody who happens to be in his way has to get out of the way in an act of submission so that people know he is the boss and that he is in charge. And Pilate's use of power, Pilate's sense of government is... I go in, I dominate, you do whatever I say, and you don't ask any questions about it. And if you do, I'll take names and I will kill you later. In the Gospels, Pilate is kind of considered this conflicted character, and I think there's some sympathy we can have for him. But in history, what we know about Pilate is he is not a nice guy. 
And here in this frenzied, whipped-up state of revelry that Jesus' followers are marching in on, they want to be that guy. They want Jesus to be that guy. They want Jesus to go in and kill Pilate and, and take over again. And Jesus, in his state of being able to ask them whatever he wants, Jesus, in this moment of Palm Sunday, can ask and tell them to do whatever he wants, and they will do it. Jesus says this, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus' style is not to march in and dominate those whom he has power over. Jesus' style is that he is going there to share the power that he has. And we ultimately know that that leads to death on a cross. We ultimately know that that leads to um, uh, giving of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus' mission can spread far and wide. But while Pilate, is, so while Pilate is marching in with an extra horse on each side coming in to dominate, and that is his view of what governing looks like, Jesus, who is claiming his spot as the king, comes in on a different way. Anybody remember what he was riding? Donkey, yes. Thank you to the child who just yelled that out, right? Jesus is riding on a donkey. And let me tell you a few things about donkeys while we're on the subject. Zechariah 9.9. This is the scripture that was part of the John 12 earlier. It says, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So one, Jesus knows the prophets, what the prophets have said. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. Jesus chooses this on purpose so that people know that even though he's not going to go dominate, he is the king. And ultimately, we're going to see in other stories from John 8 and otherwise where Jesus proves that he is the king above the law, above the Romans, above anybody else, that he is the ultimate authority and that he will be the one who sets the standard on this earth. But the other thing about donkeys in this context of Zechariah is that kings traditionally did ride in on war horses if they were looking to dominate and take names. Jesus rides in on a donkey because there is legend, there's not a whole lot of firm evidence, but there's a legendary evidence that says that if a king was going in to sign a peace treaty, that they rode in on a donkey so that the intentions were known right off the bat. And so Jesus rides in on a donkey so his intentions are known right off the bat of how his kingdom is going to look. They would have also remembered scriptures like Deuteronomy 17, 16, even so, the king must not acquire many horses for himself. Psalm 20, 6-9. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and stand upright. Do you see how Pilate's government differs from the way Jesus wants us to rule, wants us to be in charge? I think what so often happens when we engage in the public sphere, and, and I, I know that like whenever you throw church and faith and politics in the same sentence together, people get the heebie-jeebies because we don't know how to have difficult conversations without hating our neighbor. Or at least we've learned that because the story we've been told, right, the era that we've been in is that we have um, been told that those who disagree with us are evil. We have not been told that we are to love our neighbor. And we have not been told to love our enemy by those who have the power to tell us what to do or to influence the way that we are. But one of the things 
going off scripture a little bit, but one of the things about the Gospel of John specifically, so if you, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, um, what happens after Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is this fervor of energy and this frenzy that marches in, and Jesus doesn't have the same measured response. Jesus marches in the temple and turns over the tables and kicks out the money changers and, and scatters everything so that the temple can be cleansed of impurities for the ultimate sacrifice to happen. It's a very kind of flow out of the Jewish way of thinking kind of, uh, of timeline. But in the Gospel of John, that scene of t- uh, turning over the tables happens early on in the Gospel. It happens in chapter 2. And, Jesus, and that's preceded by this prologue to the Gospel of John. If maybe you've heard this before. It's, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you skip to verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh. And I love the way that the, Eugene Peterson translates it in the Message Bible. It says, the, uh, God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And he goes to a wedding, and he participates in a wedding. And then he goes into the temple and he kind of reclaims the temple. And so the Gospel of John is not nearly as concerned about the um, clearing the temple for the ultimate sacrifice. It's not just about this personal relationship and our sins being cleansed. The Gospel of John is a spiritual gospel that is very concerned about how do the people who are supposed to be freed from sin in Jesus Christ operate together in the world. It's a very uh, clear understanding in the Gospel of John that God came into the world to exist in the world. And you can chart the course through multiple very explicit scriptures that God cares about how we interact with this world, in this world, not looking to escape this world. I mean, Jesus even says, I don't want you, God. Jesus is praying to God and says, in chapter 14 and says, um, I don't want you to take them out of this world. I want them to engage in this world. And so for Christians to kind of take their hands and say, you know what, in the public sphere of things, we're not going to mess with that. We're just going to keep our individual faith and we're going to come to church and we're going to do this faith thing in church, but we're not going to do it when we have relationships with people and what we would call politics or what I would just call public is incompatible with what Jesus does as he marches into the temple. And the temple is where laws are kept, laws are made, laws are enforced. And Jesus, who has the opportunity in this frenzy where his followers will do whatever he asks them to do, simply says, I want you to love one another. I want you to put your needs secondary to the good of the whole people. I want you to interact in public so that everybody has the same power with each other. And I love what you're going to get a devotional. We've been having these email devotionals come out. Um, and I've asked people who are engaged in education or engaged in business or whatever to kind of speak into their experience of what faith is like as a parent or in education or in the business world or whatever. And um, so finding people who are involved in the public political sphere is a little more difficult. But um, Joni Clark, who is sitting back here, uh, works as the city manager of Lucas. And uh, one of the things I absolutely loved, I was reading through a devotional and it just hit me like a ton of bricks because there was nothing in there about anything you would see on any headline or any newspaper or CNN or Fox News or whatever in there. I loved it. It was this very simple line that she basically says, I have to make sure people have clean water. I thought, oh, because we get so focused on whatever issue it is of the day, whatever we have a frenzy and excitement about. And, and because of that frenzy and excitement, we're willing to destroy each other and we're willing to tear each other down and we're willing to march to the temple and take it over only for somebody else to march on us later on. And here is somebody who has is in the seat of power, who has the, the resources for the city and has to think clearly, has to kind of take, has to, you know, calm down. Like there's a bunch of people being loud about this. I just need you to have clean water. I need you to have roads you can get to where you can go. 
she's got to put herself in a faithful place of saying, what are the goods of the whole? What are the goods of the city over and above even what she might want to do? And I think this is an incredibly faithful response to what Jesus does on Palm Sunday where he has this incredibly measured response. He has a fearless crowd behind him, but his style is one in which he wants to bring people together to a table and he is willing to give his life so that others might see that same kind of sacrificial love and follow that sacrificial love knowing that the power of God is on the other side in resurrection. And there's a whole new era for us of resurrection in which we are able to come together and sit at the same table, even if we are not in the same agreement of how things work, to find what is best for everybody in this world. And I think that's how we as Christians are called to engage in that public political sphere. It is irresponsible of us to put anybody above Jesus as king. Therefore, it's irresponsible of us to say that anybody is God-ordained or carries our entire faith of hope in politics. What our responsibility is, is to engage in the public sphere of making sure that if I have power and if I have resources, I hope my neighbor does too. Because we all need clean water. And we all need roads to get where we can go. And we all need a safe education spot for our kids. And we all need public safety. I mean, shoot, the letters from Paul talk about what is God's use for the government is to keep order so that we can have safe places so that, you know, the movement of Christ can spread. But that doesn't happen if we stay in this frenzied, panicked, excited state where we are marching to the temple, waving our palms and shouting Hosanna for all the wrong reasons. Hosanna means save us. And I really hope as Christians we lead the way of letting Jesus actually save us, not for just our benefit, but for the benefit of the world around us. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give us such confidence such confidence in the end game of your heart, such confidence in the fearlessness that you exhibit, such confidence in our belief of your resurrected life, that we no longer have to live out of our own insecurities, but we can live in the security of your coming kingdom, a coming kingdom that invites everyone to the table so that we might all partake in your grace together. We might all see the humanness inside of each other and see that we are loved. God, we know that our faith does not stop with our own discipleship. It doesn't even stop in the walls of this church, but it extends when we go to school, in our workplace, at the clubhouse, wherever we may find ourselves. Our faith has to be present, God, and we repent when it hasn't been. And we pray that in those spaces that people might know us as your disciples by the love that we show. As in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we... Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.